Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For 24 years, University of Arizona astronomer Marsha Riki has worked on the James Webb Space Telescope project. Finally, a million miles from Earth, far from our satellites and the Hubble, the spacecraft will hit its burners today to drop into a point of relative stability between the Earth and the Sun. It's the next big step on the path to making entirely new types of observations of the universe, and Dr. Riki will give us the big update. Then we're talking salmon sightings in Bay Area bodies of water. I never even imagined there might be salmon in Lake Merritt. So why did it happen this year? And what does it mean for our local fisheries? That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The James Webb Space Telescope could play a defining role in helping humans understand our place in the universe. It will be used to measure the atmospheres of planets around other stars, which may provide evidence of living processes, and it will peer back ever further in time, inching us closer to the moment when every single thing around us began. But to do that, it has to go through perhaps the most complex operation humans have attempted in space a million miles away. That's four times the distance to the moon. It's that potential for humanity-shaping knowledge as well as disaster that have made the story of the telescope's deployment so riveting. It began with a rocket launch on December 25th, and its journey through space should end this afternoon. Then it must complete its transformation into the telescope that we all hope it can be. Dr. Marsha Riki, University of Arizona astronomer, thanks for joining us again on Forum to talk about this tremendous project. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, I'm so excited that everything has gone quite well so far. Has it really? T- tell me about it. Because, I mean, when we talked in August, there was a long checklist of things that had to go right. Um, what's gone right so far? Well, of course, the launch went right. In fact, the launch was exquisite. Um, the burn was perfect. The mid-course correction that came after that was perfect. So we have lots of fuel on board for a long lifetime. And then the really scary things like all of the deployments, deploying the solar array, deploying deploying the sun shield, which is incredibly tricky with cables and pulleys and release mechanisms, and getting the telescope um, large structure pieces into place all of that has gone very well. So a couple things to focus in on within that. Given that the burns are perfect and there is more fuel on board, 
What is that? Like you said it would extend the life of the telescope, but by how much are we talking, do you think, that it went so well? Well, you know, the the requirement was everything get tested to ensure a five-year lifetime mm-hmm. with a 10-year goal and the amount of fuel with what we would call nominal station keeping because the Lagrange two-point is an equilibrium uh, uh, an equilibrium, but not stable. So some fuel has to be used to keep the telescope in that area. Um, and if all of that is nominal, um, we could have a 20 year lifetime. Wow. But one has to, one has to remember that some of the mechanisms and in the instruments and things were not tested for that kind of length of time. They are, we can pretty much guarantee something like 10 years. But if it's like most things, engineers do a fantastic <laughs> job and, and they'll make 20 years. Yeah, yeah. The other uh, moment in this journey that I wanted to dilate on is that opening of the sun shield. So let people know, first of all, why did this telescope need a sun shield? And what was it built of? And how was it actually sort of supposed to unfold? So it needs a sun shield because to make these sensitive observations in the infrared, the telescope needs to be cold. And the only way to keep such a big telescope cold is to keep the sunlight off it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the basic need for the sun shield. The sun shield has five layers and each layer is very thin kind of um, I think the official name is Kapton, but you can think of it as being very much like um, the Mylar uh, blankets you buy at the hiking store for emergency Mm. use. Very Mm -hmm. thin metal coated plastic with five layers and with um, a series of cables used to um, tension them and keep them apart from each other. So each of the five layers is suspended separately and not touching the other layers. Wow. And how big and, is it when it's deployed? Um, it's not quite the size of a tennis court, but close. So we're talking about something quite, quite big. Wow. Um, the other kind of crucial moment here will be when we actually start to turn on the various instruments, what I I guess is called commissioning. Um, When will that actually start to happen? Because it's still a little ways away, right? Right. Actually, parts of two of the instruments are already turned on because they had different various thermal requirements. Um, We're hoping that my instrument will get turned on uh, by roughly by the end of this month, whether it's as early as Sunday or a little bit after that depends on some other tests that are ongoing. And the fourth instrument, the Canadian instrument, would be turned on at about the same time. So we're getting close. Let's talk about your instrument. Um, you mentioned that the observations a- a- on your instrument are going to be in the infrared, which is uh, longer wavelengths than we can see. Um, what what has gone into the creation of this particular instrument, and, and what is it designed to do? Well, it's designed to take um, beautiful images. I hope we turn out some that are just as gorgeous as what we've come to know and love from Hubble. And from the science perspective, 
one of its key jobs is to find these um, most distant galaxies that we can possibly find. And it has another job as well. It takes the images that are used to keep, to, to align the 18 mirror segments mm -hmm. and keep them aligned over time. And it's that latter task that's keeping the mirror aligned that caused um, or set the hardest requirements in building NIRCAM. So NIRCAM's optics have to be nearly perfect. And when you think about the fact that NIRCAM was assembled at room temperature, because that's where people like to work, but operates at a temperature of something like minus 388 Fahrenheit. Wow. You assemble it at room temperature and calculate where to put everything so that its optical performance is virtually perfect at this cold temperature. That's a, that's a quite a good engineering feat. Huh? Oh my gosh. So how were you able to actually do that? I mean, I suppose you can sort of calculate how things are going to change once that extreme cold, you do simulations, you probably did tons of testing. Give, give us a little bit on that engineering challenge and how you work through it. Okay. Well, um, I built NIRCAM in, in collaboration with the team at uh, Lockheed's Advanced Technology Center in Palo Alto, so in your neighborhood. And they developed a way to keep track of how much each component would shrink and shift as the instrument cooled down. And then indeed, we did do tests to confirm that their calculations were right and the scheme worked beautifully. We, there was a guy who shall remain nameless that predicted that it would take us 30 cooling cycles to get near cam aligned. Mm -hmm. Not so. It was, it was almost perfect on the first try. So it's a real testament to when people put their minds to it, what they can figure out. Um, I wanted to come back um, to the place in space where this instrument will be hanging out. You mentioned it's called Lagrange Point 2, um, and it's a pretty special place in the solar system. So tell us a little more about this particular spot. Uh, this is a spot where the gravitational fields of the sun, the moon, the earth conspire to balance each other. So if you put something at L2, it will orbit the sun basically at the same rate that the earth does. So the telescope and the earth stay in the same relationship, which means that it's always about the same distance away, which is good for sending the data back. Mm. And the one thing is that you should think of this as being a little bit like if you take a pencil and try to a sharpened pencil and balance it on its tip. It might stay that way for a few seconds, but any little puff of breeze would knock it over. Mm. And so one has to do, we don't literally sit at the L2 point because then we'd be in the shadow of the earth and the solar array wouldn't work. So we do a little dance around the L2 point and maintain uh, where the telescope is by doing what's called station keep, keeping. So every few days, um, there'll be a little puff of rocket usage to keep us in, in this good location. How, how much are you moving? I mean, it's a million miles away. How, much, how, how big are the dance steps? Oh, I'd have to look back up. But I think um, 
something like 10,000 kilometers. So, hmm. you know, 8,000 miles or something like that. I'd, I'd have to look it up. It's not a lot, but it's enough to keep us out of the Earth's shadow. Got it. And how much, I mean, is it a lot of, I imagine this, is, it actually doesn't take that much force uh, in that kind of place to, to move around. No, it doesn't take much force, which is why um, the fuel can last as long as it as it can. Because I I think we launched with a something like I have to remember, but of order three hundred pounds of fuel. A lot of that got used up in the first course correction, and I don't know exactly how much is left, but it's measured in you know, a few tens of pounds, not thousands of pounds. Got it. Got it. Got it. We're talking with astronomer, astronomer Marsha Riki as she waits for the James Webb Space Telescope to enter its orbit. She's the principal investigator for the NIRCAM on the James Webb Space Telescope. And we would love to hear more from you. I personally have been waiting for the James Webb Space Telescope for uh, about 10 years, I would say, uh, when I first started to write about it and think about it. What do you hope that this James Webb Space Telescope will discover? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're going to be talking more with Marsha Riki about the types of observations that the telescope will make when we get back from the break. But first, you still can get in touch on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. We're talking space. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with astronomer Marsha Riki as she waits for the James Webb Space Telescope to enter orbit. She's the principal investigator for the NIRCAM on the James Webb Space Telescope. She's been working on this project for 24 years, right, Marsha? Dr. Riki? Yes, I started in 1998. 1998. That is a long time. Um, we have some comments and questions coming in from listeners, uh, and I want to get to those. Rick asks... Since one of the lifetime limiting factors is fuel, as we were discussing before the break, why wasn't the James Webb Space Telescope designed so a rocket could be sent to refuel it? Largely because um, any rocket that would get nearby would have some rocket exhaust that could contaminate the optics because the rocket exhaust would be warm and those molecules would go all over the place and they would stick to the coldest surfaces 
nearby, which would be the mirrors. And most rocket fuels um, include materials that absorb the infrared. So this would not, not be a good thing. Oh, wow. Like it would actually pollute your observations to have a ship come by. Yep. How do you deal with that using the booster to do the dance to keep the to keep out of the Earth's shadow? The booster is on the very bottom of the spacecraft and directed um, away from the mirror area. And it also is, um, you know, really kind of channeled in a way and particular materials were chosen as well. How do you keep the, if we know that this instrument requires to, to make the kinds of precise, precise observations that it's going to, it needs to be kept remarkably pristine. So how do you plan to do that? Do we, do we plan on some operational degradation over time as it gets dirty out there in space? Yeah, actually it shouldn't get too dirty um, because fortunately space is pretty empty. So that, uh, that won't, shouldn't be too much of a problem. There was plan. There is planned or assumed degradation of the sun shield because of micrometeorites, mm-hmm. and all of the performance quotes are based on how things would be acting at the end of the nominal five-year lifetime. And at that point, everything should still be working just fine. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller, Chris from Fremont. Welcome to the show. Yes. Hi. I'm wondering. Hubble used visible white lab- wavelength to do false color assignments. Will James Webb Space Telescope be able to do that? And just uh, before you answer that, Dr. Ricky, I just wanted to say, you know, to people who may not know how a lot of this imaging works, that the Hubble images, when we say false color, they're like real images, but scientists assigned particular colors to particular wavelengths that wouldn't actually have looked like that to human eyes. Yes, and we will do the same kind of trick with Webb because um, hardly any of the wavelengths we're going to measure could your eye see. So we will assign colors to the different wavelength pictures that we take, either to highlight a particular structure or to give something that gives a pleasing rendition and and illustrates what we're trying to observe. Mm -hmm. Um, Fred tweets, how does Webb transmit electricity and instructions from the solar panels and antenna on its hot side to the instruments on its cold side without also conducting heat? Well, the answer is some heat does get conducted, but that's why um, the instruments and some of the other structures on the cold side actually have radiators that dump some of that heat that gets Um, either transmitted from below or generated by the electronics boxes, it radiates that heat off into space. So there's some very black, um, basically, sheets of metal that radiate the excess heat off into space. Let's bring in Robbie from Oakland. Welcome, Robbie. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So uh, the thing I'm most interested in hearing about and the thing that I'm most excited about with James Webb is um, questions that we haven't even thought to ask yet because we don't even know sort of how to ask them. 
And uh, that's the thing I'm most excited about with James Webb is that it will unlock questions for us that we haven't even thought about or anticipated yet because we haven't had the equipment to do it. Uh, And I know there's precedent for that with Hubble. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that, Dr. Riki? Like the... We there's going to be questions we don't know. There seems like there's like a few different like things we know we could make interesting observations about and then things that maybe people have been kicking around like, well, if we happen to see X, it might mean Y, which would be really exciting. Yeah, indeed. I often um, when I'm asked to give a talk about what Webb is going to discover, I point out that probably the most exciting discovery is one that we haven't thought of. And so I agree completely with the caller that um, it's the the discovery potential that in many ways is the most exciting. And there are some um, observing programs where, you know, we'll take data in a certain way and we'll see certain things. But there are also some programs where there's a main observation. And because Webb can run several instruments simultaneously, other instruments will take data on a piece of sky in, that we hadn't necessarily planned on looking at. And who knows what we're going to see? It could be quite exciting. I Yeah, I think we have. The, the excitement has been building. <laughs> um, you know, a, a listener tweets a, a question that I also have, which is, you know, what is the sort of, what kinds of data will we receive from the James Webb Space Telescope? And, and I'd actually like to know what kind of throughput we actually have. Like, it's placed where it is in part for the communications back to Earth. So what kind of throughput is there on that data link? The throughput is actually quite high. We use the the deep space network to get our data back. But in fact, um, it is a, there is a limitation in how much we can send back down. And the way NIRCAM gets used, we actually, um, we can read out our detectors almost continuously, but we could never send quite that much to the ground. So when we're pointing at a fixed direction, uh, we sometimes co-add these reads so that we have less to send to the ground. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're gonna be sending down um, a fair fraction of a terabyte per day. Oh, wow. Is that, how does that compare to Hubble? Uh, it's quite a bit higher than Hubble because we have arrays that can be read out in this way that we call non-destructively. Most of Hubble's detectors can only be read out once and then you start a new exposure. So it's a, it's a somewhat different style because that's how infrared detectors work. Oh, wow. That seems good. <laughs> yep. Noah from uh, San Francisco, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, thanks. Um, I just wondered, I know that time for use of the telescope is allotted ahead of time. Um, and I wanted to see, is it posted publicly anywhere? Um, who's going to get the time and what that time is going to be used for so we can anticipate what kind of discoveries we might be uh, learning about? Google um, JWST guest observer program, you will find uh, a website that Space Telescope Science Institute runs with all of the proposals listed, but grouped by broad science category. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that we could actually see that. And 
You know, I I also wondered, you know, a lot has changed in science since the Hubble was being put together, uh, since this project started to come together in the in the late 1990s. Is the James Webb sort of both team as well as the guest observer program, is it more diverse than astronomy has traditionally been? It is more diverse, partly because Webb covers um, a broad wavelength range. And so it's a, it's a mission that's of great interest to um, infrared astronomers, visible light astronomers, and there's a segment of the radio astronomy community that is also very interested. So from a, from a topical perspective, it's very diverse. And the way the Institute ran the proposal solicitation, they judged proposals in a blind fashion, meaning that the names of the proposers were left off. And this has led to more women and more young people being selected. That And what has that been like for you as someone who has been in this field for a long time? I, I think it's great to get more young people involved and not have just old sages dominate what goes on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Dave uh, writes, one of our listeners, I hope the James Webb Space Telescope will find chemical evidence of life in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. And I will say, this is why I've been excited about this telescope for 10 years. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that particular kind of observation and what we might be on the lookout for as, you know, humans looking for life around other planets. Yeah, and this is an area that is um, greatly debated right now. What, What kinds of molecules would we think of as not just possibly biogenic, but actual markers of life. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of molecules that Webb can see, um, one of the more interesting ones is ozone in the mid-infrared range, because ozone means there's likely oxygen. And of course, for those of us on Earth, oxygen is pretty darn important. And then there's lots of other molecules that we're familiar with, like water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, methane, a number of others. But how to prove that a certain collection of molecules means there's life, um, that that is going to be something I'm sure we're going to argue about for a while. But one thing that people have suggested is that if you put a bunch of molecules in a jar, they'll reach a certain, you know, they'll collide, they may change a little bit, they may react, but there'll be a certain kind of equilibrium distribution of things. If we find a collection of molecules that the chemists would say are in disequilibrium, that is in, a, in various ratios that couldn't, couldn't exist without some way to keep that ratio, maintain that ratio, that might be one of the best ways to look for life. So that would mean making a series of observations over time and then on the basis of those changes, saying there must be some other force not explained by non-biology. Yeah, it, but even then, non-geologic processes can unfortunately mimic biology. So I'm sure we're going to have arguments in the future over all of this. Yeah. Um, I want to bring in a uh, caller, Will, from San Leandro. Welcome, Will. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm calling. I have my question is with the materials that are used to for the heat shield for the James Webb Telescope. Um, and obviously, I know they're very expensive now, but maybe with the economies of scale, could we use that material and put it on our houses so that we might not need air conditioning? Super interesting, too, with a long history of space technology making their way down uh, into practical applications after after a period of time. What do you think, Dr. Riki? I think it would be easier to go find some of these new super paints that have been developed recently. Um, I was reading not too long ago about a new ultra white paint that reflects some huge fraction of the sunlight. And the reason I say that is that um, some, a solid surface painted white, I think, is easier to maintain than a very thin plastic material that might be subject to being blown away in the wind and so on. So I think uh, ultra white paint might be the way to go. Another uh, question about the types of observations, Dr. Riki, and thanks for uh, that question. Kelly asks, I keep hearing things saying the James Webb Telescope will see all the way back to the Big Bang. I understand the Doppler effect and the shifting to more infrared, but if all matter was ejected at once during the Big Bang, presumably at less than the speed of light, getting all the way to our galaxy then took time to make the planets to say nothing of all the time it's taken for species to scamper out of the primordial ooze, wouldn't any light from the Big Bang long since have passed us, even the light from the first dying stars, would long be past us now, wouldn't it? Maybe you can describe what we mean when we say seeing back to the light from early in the universe's history. So what we mean is that we're detecting light that left at a particular time. So if you think about you know, the lifetime of the web, yes, there'll be a, I hope as much as a 20 year spread in when those that light left their original sources. Um, but these things that, are, that we're trying to detect near the beginning of, of all time um, radiate continuously. They don't just emit a burst um, typically. And so we're seeing what they've emitted and there'll be a little spread in when that light left it, but we can still see those, um, those objects because they emit light over quite a period. It is also the case that some of the very first stars to form might only live a couple million years. And so that's one of the things that makes it hard to see them because we, in fact, might, might miss them because of time effects. I want to bring in one last caller, uh, Peter from St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome. Thank you. You know... It's wonderful listening to you, the, the guest here, because it's like so I'm so optimistic and I'm a big fan of William Herschel and hearing you talk. So William Herschel lived in the, well, 1780s and he, he had a telescope and he speculated. I mean, he realized that he was seeing stars that have long since died but there's, the light hasn't reached us yet. And not only that, he, he put a thermometer to the right of a prism and detected the heat. No one had discovered that yet, that, that there's heat, that there's infrared light. And I was thinking, my God, well, he can't be alive today, but I am ecstatic on behalf of William Herschel because he would be loving to hear about this. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Dr. Riki, do you see yourself 
in this tradition of astronomers who are exploring this unknown? Like, how do you how do you see that relationship? Well, I just see myself as someone who's always been excited by astronomy, and I'm I'm so thankful that I've gotten the opportunity to participate in this mission. I don't really think of myself so much as an explorer, as someone who wants to make things happen. And I'm so, so thankful that I've gotten a chance to, to do that. Where are you going to be uh, watching out for news on this last uh, major rocket burn? I'll be in my office on campus of University of Arizona this afternoon. So I'll That's right it? You're not going to go somewhere special? You're not going to... Are you going to light some candles or have a ritual here? Um, you know, actually, this burn is so small and, and not so risky that um, I'll be paying attention, but I'm not the least bit worried. We, we, we had much more of a, a to-do when all the deployments were done. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'll be knocking on wood for you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. Astronomer Marsha Riki at the University of Arizona. She's the principal investigator for the NIRCAM on the James Webb Space Telescope. Thanks so much for joining us again, and congratulations on getting this far. And thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Last couple nice things from our listeners. Sean tweets, Marsha Riki and the Webb team are heroes to us all. A listener writes, I hope the James Webb Telescope will reveal new visions of the universe that help humanity come together with the understanding of how special our planetary home is and foster peace and unity on a planetary level. Indeed. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. We're talking salmon. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.